I don't know about you, but when I hear those words just as I am, I think about the fact that we come here today all with different struggles, uh, different issues, different concerns, trials that we're facing, and to think that in Christ we do really come and just in poverty of spirit today, no matter where you're at, no matter what kind of guilt you walked in here with today, in poverty of spirit, we can enter into this worship service and come to God as we are and beg for his mercy. And so that's what we're doing today. I hope that, that every service begins with a kind of poverty of spirit, a, a, a recognition of the great need that we have before our God. I want to thank Walt for preaching last Sunday and uh, it was a, a great time away for Jennifer and I as we went away with her family to the beach and good, good time together as a family. So thank you all. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 9. That's where we will be today. Matthew 6, verses 7 to 9. And today we're picking back up with our series on the Sermon on the Mount. So, hence the posters all over the place. Uh, if you're visiting here today, that is what we've been doing. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, this, this glorious nutshell uh, discussion of the Christian life, kingdom life, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus is on a mountain. He's speaking to his disciples. His disciples came to him, and he opened up his mouth, and he said, and he began to teach these things to his disciples as he laid out for them the kind of life that he had called them to, that he calls them to, that he calls us to, and the relationship between king and kingdom citizens and how the righteousness that he manifested and evidenced in his own life was to be lived out among those who called him king. And the last two times that we were here, last week, uh, Walt discussed Joseph as a father in light of Father's Day. But the last time we were here was the week before that. And those two weeks, we explored the topic of doing our religious practices before the eyes of God rather than before the eyes of other people. And we were introduced to this topic that, uh, that takes up a lot of Matthew chapter 6. We were introduced to this topic in the very first verse of that chapter. So look there with me, if you will. Chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That is a, a major part of Matthew 6. We've looked all through Matthew 5, and we come to Matthew chapter 6. A, a, a huge chunk of Matthew 5 dealt with the righteousness with regard to how we understand the law, the, the fulfillment that is in Christ and how Christ himself fully explicates and fulfills the law and how the scribes and Pharisees, instead of obeying the law, were actually twisting it, perverting it, and they were unrighteous in their interpretation and application of the law. And then we come into chapter six and we see that not only were they unrighteous in, in terms of their understanding of God's truth, but they were also unrighteous in terms of their pretensions that these were people who lived out their religious devotions in front of other people in order to be seen by them. And so chapter 6, verse 1 introduces that. And then Jesus goes on to give three examples or devotional areas where this teaching can be applied. So you'll see that, verses 2 
to six, he deals with giving to the poor. He deals with praying. And then jump to verses 16 to 18, he deals with fasting. So he takes these three areas, this love for other people, this giving to other people, this communion with God, and this dying to self. He takes these three areas and he analyzes them from the perspective of one who would either do them before the face of God or would do them before the face of other people in order to be seen by them. These are three kind of areas of application where he shows what it looks like in these instances to be a performer, to be pretentious. Not pride, Jesus says, but worship. Not showy, but secretive. Not lying, but loving. Not faithless, but faithful not petty, temporary reward. The praise of men, oh, he's so great, he's so holy. He's got it so much together. I wish I could be like him or I wish I could be like her. Not the petty, temporary praise of men or these petty rewards, but a precious, eternal reward in the presence of God. That's the, those are the contrasts that we have got already. What a contrast it is to live this Godward life as opposed to this hypocritical, self-loving, self-idolizing, self-centered form of life for the glory of God and the good of others. Everything could be summed up in that. Everything that we do, any area of thinking or speaking or doing could be summed up in this, for the glory of God and the good of others. That's exactly what Jesus says when he says that all of the law and the prophets hang on these two, to love the Lord your God with your whole self and to love your neighbor as yourself. So that's what Jesus holds out before us. As we come to Matthew chapter six, and he, and he gets down deep into our hearts as he, I think, explores areas in our hearts that we don't like to talk about. You know, as I read to you last week, Lloyd-Jones describes how this is some of the most painful parts of scripture because so often we fall into these pretentious habits, these peripheral kind of ways of doing things. We're, we're going about the religious life, we're going about the Christian life, we're doing all of these things, and we can begin to think that we're quite pious or holy, we're doing pretty well, and then Jesus comes along and messes, he just wrecks it. A wrecking ball, that's what Matthew chapter six is. It's a wrecking ball to this false conception of piety. And Jesus gets down really deep into the heart, and he asks us to consider, how much are you looking to the left? How much are you looking to the right? How much are you looking at other people so that, you can be up, so that you can gain their approval, so that you can perform well in front of them? This is the topic we spent two weeks looking at in the midst of making this larger point against hypocrisy, which is at the core what all of this is. Jesus provides an extended discussion on this topic of prayer. And so as he comes to prayer, he gives these three illustrations. He does giving, and then as he comes to prayer, he treats it in, with respect to the topic I just mentioned before fasting, doing the same. But as he treats prayer, he extends his discussion a little bit on the topic of prayer. And that's where we find ourselves now. Prayer is not just a practice to be done from the heart without pretension and hypocrisy. It cannot be left there. It can't just be left there it is communion. It is relationship. That's what prayer is. It is relationship with our heavenly 
Father. So what we'll do today is we will cover verses 7 to the very first part of verse 9, where it says, pray then like this. So we're not actually going to begin looking at the Lord's Prayer today. We'll do that next week. But today we're going to just sort of introduce ourselves to the Lord's Prayer as we consider these three verses here that precede those famous words, our Father, as we come to the Lord's Prayer to the Lord's Prayer. So let's go ahead and read these verses. Matthew chapter six, verses seven to nine. And if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Go ahead and be seated as we take some time to to go to the Lord in prayer and Just to ask for his blessing on our service today, I invite you to pray to yourself with me as we are asking for the Lord to do his will here. That's what we want. We came here this morning, I hope, to see the will of God done in our lives individually and to see the will of God done in our church. And that's what we want. So let's ask God that he will do just that. Nothing less and nothing more. Our Father, Our great God, you are enthroned in the highest. Glory to God in the highest, the angel said when they came and presented the good news to the lowly shepherds on a hillside outside of Bethlehem. Glory to God in the highest. This peace that comes to men is itself glorifying to you. And so, Father, as we celebrate the peace that comes to men in the gospel of Jesus Christ today. We recognize that you are most glorified as we experience this peace, as we experience the truth of the gospel. And so, God, would you uphold your name today? Would you make yourself to be exalted? Would you make yourself great in the midst of this people? And, God, would you you use us to bring forth your kingdom purposes here in this church and in Noonan and around. And God, would your name be glorified as your kingdom comes. We pray that your will will be done today in each person's life. God, we recognize that we have all kinds of desires. We have all sorts of of things that we come here seeking. We know not what we need, God. And so we ask that you will accomplish your purposes, which we know are perfect, that you will You will do your work today as your word is preached and as it is understood and as praises are sung and words are meditated upon and we see and participate in the Lord's Supper. As we pray and as we fellowship as the body of Christ, would your will be done among us. And God, we we know that there are many needs here today and so we just ask that you will meet us, each of us, at our point of need, Father, that you will provide for us those physical things which we, which we need, and we pray where there is 
financial struggles, where there are health struggles, where there are emotional struggles, marital struggles, God, parenting struggles, all of these things that we worry about and are concerned about naturally. God, would you meet us there today? Would you begin to give us faith, greater faith in you, our Father in heaven? Father, we pray that you will forgive us of our sins and that you will protect us from the one who tempts us to sin. Knowing that the sin does not come from him, it comes from within us, our own fleshy, evil desires. Father, we pray that you will protect us from him, that you will keep us safe spiritually, that you'll protect our children spiritually, that you'll protect our marriages spiritually. And God, we just pray that you will run Satan off from this place, run Satan off from each of our lives, Father, and just give us that strength in you, not in ourselves, but in you. Equip us, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, with the full armor of God. Help us to be, to be equipped in your strength and not in our own strength. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be together today, and we thank you for prayer, and we offer this entire service up to you in praise, and we ask for your help. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in his name we pray. Amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is Approaching Abba. You can go ahead with the slide, Kevin. Thank you. Approaching Abba. And another way that you could, I guess, entitle this is Praying to Papa. I went with Approaching Abba. It's a biblical word. But you could put Praying to Papa. The reason I say that is because it's this idea of God as our Father. We know that Paul says in Romans 8, verse 15, that the Spirit brings about praying in us that says to God, Abba, Father. Abba is a, an Aramaic word. It's an expression that, that brings family life into focus. It's, the, it's an expression that brings into view a small child and his daddy. For those of us who have small children, we know exactly what that relationship looks like. And for those of us who've had children, we you know as well, this very intimate, close connection between a daddy and his child. Carson, D.A. Carson comments that daddy in the English language is perhaps not the best expression for Abba, but he says that he thinks that the word Papa might really capture it, at least from our perspective in our culture. Maybe in other cultures where Papa sounds more like daddy, maybe not. But the, the point is that it is an intense intimacy with this one whom we call Father. And right in the center of our passage, we get in verse 8, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then at the very beginning of this prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, uh, some commentators say it's not really the Lord's Prayer, it's the disciples' prayer. It's the prayer that the disciples are to pray. It's the Lord's Prayer insofar as it is the prayer that the Lord lays out for us, the a, the prayer that, that Jesus instructs us in, but what we know as the Lord's Prayer begins, our Father. And so, as we begin to think about prayer a little more, we are thinking about what it means to approach this Abba, to pray to Papa, to talk to our Daddy. I think our passage for today on this important topic of prayer raises four challenging 
and encouraging questions for us to consider. And that's what we have up here on the screen. Four questions that I think emerge as we go through just these three verses before we get into the Lord's Prayer. So the first question is, do you talk? Do you think? Do you trust? And then do you tailor? And one, of the, one important thing to say is that it is in the nature of expository preaching that you really do kind of contain yourself to the text before you. In other words, what we want to avoid is, is kind of coming to the topic of prayer and we leave this text on prayer and we just explore prayer, right? I mean, that, that's, that's a habit that we can fall into. So really, the sermon is not based on Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 9. It's based on some, our own personal systematic understanding of prayer. And that could be very fruitful, but what I want to encourage you in today is that this is not going to be, a, even as we go through the Lord's Prayer, perhaps everything that you need to know on prayer. This is not some kind of comprehensive, extensive understanding of prayer. Lloyd-Jones does say that as we come to the Lord's Prayer, we get all of the great principles of prayer, period. And in fact, all of the great principles of the Christian life, period. But I say all of this to, just to say that what we really want to do is learn from this text of scripture as it is before us. We want to sit underneath it and we want to drink from this what it has for us. In light of all of scripture, yes, but we don't wanna leave this and go off and explore prayer. We want to explore this passage on prayer. And so these four questions I think will help us get into what we have here. Do you talk, think, trust, and tailor? So let's go to the first, do you talk? Before we go any deeper into the richness of prayer, there is no more basic question to ask than this. Do you do it? <laughs> there you go. Do you pray? Do you pray? I like the way Lloyd-Jones describes prayer when he says that it is, listen to this, ultimately a talk. Prayer is ultimately a talk, a conversation a communion with my Father. Abba. Yes, my son. That is prayer. A talk. So here's the question. Do you talk? Do you talk with God? Do you talk with God, Christian? Do you talk with God? Look at the opening verse. Look at the opening words of verse 7. And when you pray... This tells us, as we pointed out before, that prayer in the kingdom is assumed. It's not if you pray, if you happen to stumble upon prayer, then, then here you go. Jesus doesn't say that. This is when you pray. Prayer is assumed. It is uh, an assumed practice of those who are citizens of this kingdom. The disciples of Jesus will pray. We will pray. Not may, will not only is it assumed at the beginning of our passage, so we see those words, and when you pray, but go to the end of the passage. At the end of our passage, it is commanded. Look at verse nine. Pray then like this. When you pray at the very beginning, it is assumed, and at the end of the passage, it is commanded. That's an imperative verb. Pray then like this. Even more, the verb pray is a present imperative form of the verb. And this tells us that prayer is to be a habitual thing. Keep on praying. Pray always. Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 
pray without ceasing. He will also say in Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You know, it's amazing that as you get the full armor of God for spiritual warfare there in in Ephesians chapter 6, he gives you all of those various parts of the, the armor that you put on in order to wage war in the Christian life, to wage Christian warfare. And at the end of all that armor, you've got all these pieces, the sword of the word, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the, the helmet of hope of our salvation, the belt of truth, all of these pieces. And then after that, he says what I just read, praying at all times in the spirit. It's as though you took this man fully armored and you dunked him in prayer. Everything pervaded by prayer. Every moment and every piece, every part from the most interior part of him to the outside, every piece from head to toe bathed in prayer, dunked in prayer, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, keep alert with all perseverance. That's incredible. That is what we are to do. So clearly, we are to pray, assumed, commanded, and habitual. Talking to God in prayer is a way of life for the Christian. I've mentioned before, and uh, you can go and listen to a, a particular sermon on prayer by John Piper, and he talks about how prayer is the breathing of a Christian, the breath of a Christian, that just as a a biological life form breathes, that this is spiritually what a Christian does to stay alive. That is life, breath, prayer. Lloyd-Jones says that a man is never greater or higher than when he's on his knees face-to-face with God. Isn't that an incredible idea? See, in our world, we think men are great when they stand tall and strong. And in Christ's kingdom, a man is great when he is on his face before God, because God is great. The Israelites were always a humble people. And it was meant to be that way. Because in their humility, in their smallness, in how little they were and unable they were, God was able to show his greatness his power. We are small and needy and dependent when we are in prayer, and that is as we ought to be in a fallen world in which the only reason we have any life and the only reason that we have hope is because of God's mercy, that he did not annihilate everything he had made, every bit of matter that he had made, every angelic being that he had made when Adam and Eve sinned. (laughs) Done. He didn't do that. Why? Because of his mercy. And so as we live and have our being, this is our position before God. And we see this even in the life of the Lord Jesus, who was sinless. He was continually in prayer. So Luke 5.16 says that he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. 
This was a, a recurring practice of the Lord Jesus, that he would withdraw to these wilderness spots, these places where no one else could bother him or be with him, and he would pray to the Father. We also get a little bit of insight into Jesus' prayer practices in Luke 6, 12. All night he continued in prayer to God. We know that he rose early, oftentimes before the sun came up and he would go to a place to pray. Why? Because right up until bedtime, Jesus was surrounded by needy people. People oftentimes couldn't even fit into the house. You know the story of the paralytic who is lowered down through the roof. He's lowered down through the roof because no one can fit. No one can get near Jesus because he's healing. At some parts in the scripture says he healed everyone who was sick. Jesus was entirely consumed with people and he needed to get away. So what did he do? He said, well, I'm just gonna chop off a little sleep and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna find that desolate place. I'm gonna be alone with the Father. I'm gonna be alone with Abba, his Abba. You know, one of the things I did this past week is, uh, this is the great thing about computer software, is you can take a word, like, you know, the Greek word for prayer, and you can search that really quickly. And everywhere in the New Testament where any form of this verb to pray comes up. And you could just read through all of them. You know, give you a little, a quick little systematic theology of prayer. You have to construct that, obviously. You need to read all those verses in context and so on and so forth. But, and you have to read it, of course, in light of the Old Testament as well. And, you know, I won't go on. <laughs> but you go through really quickly and you read all of those and you, you take all of that wonderful stuff in. And one of the things that did for me I have a tendency when I do that to get to go off for a long time on things, and I just sometimes I have to say, I'm just going to read them. I'm not even going to take notes, or else I'll just lose myself. But I go through all of these, these different occurrences. 80 times the verb to pray, is this particular verb to pray, is used throughout the New Testament. It is incredible when you do that, to just see whoo, prayer as it sweeps through the entirety of the New Testament. In the book of Acts alone, it occurs 16 times. That's almost one-fourth. The early Christians were constantly in communion with God through prayer. Constantly praying to God. It's incredible to see all of the things they prayed for, all of the ways they prayed individually, with two, with three, with a group, on the seashore, on the boat, at the temple, in the upper room, everywhere. They are praying, 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 praying people. So back to the question, do you talk? Do you talk with God? There is no greater test of spiritual life and health than prayer. You ever thought about that? No greater test. This means to say, I think, this would be worth considering for all of us who claim to be Christians. One of the great problems in the church for a long time has been that there are a lot of unconverted people in the church. I don't mean that there are a lot of unconverted people in Four Corners Church. My prayer is that there aren't. But that in the church, in the churches, especially where there's kind of superficial understanding of Scripture and the gospel, there are lots of church people who don't know Jesus, who don't know the Lord, who've never been converted, whose sins have never been forgiven. So I want to ask you this. Do you even pray at all? Because I think if your answer to that question is actually no, you are not a Christian. 
You're not. If you don't talk to God, you're not a Christian. Let that fall on you. Praise God that his word convicts us and transforms us and brings us from death to life. It is not easy to hear. It is not meant to be soft. It is meant to be straight into the heart where there is much callousness and blindness and darkness and sin and is meant to penetrate deep into the heart. So ask yourself that question. If you really don't ever pray, there's a very, very, very tiny chance that you're even a believer because like I said, it's the breath of a Christian. When that Holy Spirit, he who regenerates the heart comes in, he brings us to the throne of God. He brings us right to God in prayer. Abba, Abba, Abba. He's crying out always. Maybe you do not have the Spirit, and that is why you do not pray. So it is the greatest test of spiritual life, but I think it is also the greatest test for the health of a Christian. And this, this is convicting to all of us. So I'm not saying that if you, if you pray less that you're not a Christian. I'm simply saying if prayer is not a part of your life, you're not a Christian. But what I am saying is that we all struggle with prayer. And what I would ask us all to do today is just to consider as you're thinking about your Christian life and how, how, you're, how you're doing, so to speak, your, your level of growth, your level of maturity, you know, we know that we're never to think ourselves wise. We know that we must always be poor in spirit. And so there really should never be a time where I'm just so mature. That should never happen. But we can be honest about our growth in the Christian life. And so the question is, as you analyze your growth in the Christian life, ask yourself this. Where am I at with prayer? Do I talk to God? Do I talk with him? Do I spend time with him? The extent to which that answer is no is the extent to which there is much spiritual immaturity. Think about that. So that's the first question we must ask. Do you talk? Each of us must ask ourselves these questions, I think, as we come to the sermon, to the uh, Lord's Prayer. Do you talk with God? The second question, do you think? Look at the rest of verse seven. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So do you talk is the first question as we get this assumed prayer. Do you think is the second question I think that we're meant to ask here. Jesus says that his followers are not to pray like the pagan Gentile nations. The word Gentile essentially just means nations, it means all of those who were not worshipers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we know that in the ancient world, especially at the time, you have Cornelius as an example of this in the book of Acts, but we know that at the time of Jesus that there were many Gentiles who had come to faith in the living God, who had come to faith in Yahweh, the God who had revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God who had made himself known to Israel through, the, through Moses as he brought them out of slavery, gave them his law, and sent them prophets, and gave them a king. That all throughout the history of Israel, that there were people. We see even Egyptians in the wilderness with the children of Israel in the Exodus account. Some of these Egyptians said, that's, that's the real God. I'm going with these people. I'm not sticking around here worshiping these birds and frogs and 
other kinds of craziness that you had in Egyptian religion. I am going to worship the one true God. And so we know that there were people who came over from the nations to worship the God of Israel, but by and large, what we find among the nations is just pure polytheistic paganism, belief in multiple gods, shrinking those gods into a not, made in their own image, by the way, to suit their own comforts and their own sin, made in their image, shrunk down into a little weird little statue. You know, you can go in any of the museums of the world. This is one of the most amazing things. To me, one of the greatest sort of proofs of the, the, the reality of the worldview of the Bible is you go in any museum in the world today, the Met, the Louvre, any of them, and what do you find? Heaps and heaps of idols. Little statues, Roman and Greek gods and goddesses, ancient Mesopotamian little statues of, of gods and goddesses. Everywhere across the world, ancient people, it is exactly as Paul says in Romans 1, that they traded the glory of the invisible God for images made of birds and animals and creeping things. Images of reptiles and stuff like that. All throughout the history of the world. That's who Jesus is talking about. These unbelieving Gentile pagans. He says, don't pray like them. Those who do not know and worship the one true living God. So before, notice this, before today, what we've looked at with prayer is that we are not to be like that Jesus is saying to his disciples, to his followers, you are not to be like the hypocritical Jews. But now he, now he teaches us, don't pray like the godless pagans. So Imagine this, Jesus is pointing to his disciples and it's almost as though he's looking over here to the left, he's looking over here to the right and he's saying, you see those Jews over there? Jesus is a Jew, but he's looking at dominant Jewish religion of his day, dominated by the scribes and Pharisees and he says, you see that? That's hypocritical, not for my disciples. And then he looks over here and he says, you see that? All the pagans around, the Romans, controlled Judea. He turns around and he says, look at all these pagans. That's what they do. You're not to be like that. You are to pray rather than to perform, and you are to pray rather than to prattle. This word prattle, I think, captures what we have here. We'll talk about this in a moment, but to talk at length in a foolish or inconsequential way, to prattle. You are not to be like the hypocrites, and you are not to be like the Gentiles. Essentially, is what Jesus says. He gives two pictures before he teaches what his disciples are to do in prayer. There are two problems that Jesus is addressing here, and both of them have to do with thinking, which is the reason I've asked the question, do you think? First problem is wrong thinking that leads into prayer. So there's, there's a kind of prayer that Jesus is describing here, and there's a sort of thinking that goes into that prayer. This is the output, the kind of praying that we just read, that we just described is the output of a way of thinking, and, and Jesus is dealing with that way of thinking. And then he is dealing with a failure to think while praying, if that makes sense. Two problems, both have to do with thinking. The thinking that precedes prayer and the lack of thinking in prayer. Both of those things Jesus is dealing with. So let's treat each one of them. First, wrong thinking, specifically wrong thinking about God. It says, for they think, they think that they will be heard for their many words. As you come to a passage like this, there probably is no better illustration then or now than what we find in 1 Kings chapter 18. 
Most of you who have been in church, maybe you've been raised in church, been a Christian for a long time, you know the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. I love that story. It's one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. It's powerful. What happens is all of Israel under King Ahab have basically turned away from from God through this lady, this pagan named Jezebel. They've all basically turned away from God and they've begun to worship Baal, a Canaanite god. They've begun to worship Baal and other gods. And so what Elijah does is he goes to Ahab and he says, let's have a contest. Is it your God, King Ahab, or is it the Lord God? Which one is God? Let's see. Imagine the amount of faith that he had to do that. He goes out to a mountain, Mount Carmel. He goes out there and it's Elijah, period. That's it. It's not Elijah and it's Elijah and it's 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Ashtoreth, another pagan deity. That's 850 and a king who is ready to kill him. He calls him, when Elijah comes up to him, he calls him, oh, it's you, you troubler of Israel. That's what he calls Elijah. Elijah says, no, you are the troubler of Israel. And then he puts before him this contest. They would go to a mountain. The prophets of Baal, would cons- they would put a bull on the altar. They'd make an altar. Prophets of Baal would put a bull on the altar. Elijah would put a bull on the altar. The prophets of Baal would ask their God to come. Baal would come and burn up the sacrifice. And then Elijah would ask God, the Lord God, to come and burn up the sacrifice. So, this is what we read in terms of the practice of these pagans who are trying to get Baal to show up. It says this, And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it. Had a lot of cheerleaders. And called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. Saying, and this is all it says, O Baal, answer us. So presumably they repeated that all half a day from morning until noon. O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, of course. There was no voice. And no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, (laughs) I love this part, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is amusing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Call louder, call louder. This is Elijah. And they cried aloud and cut themselves. It's a demonic. It's demonic to do this to the body. They cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on. Oh, they'll answer us. They're bleeding to death, dancing around the altar all morning raving on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention at all. And of course, we know what happens. Well, some of us, Elijah got up there and said a prayer. 
And then he said, cover the altar with water. Cover the altar with water. I want there to be no question who did this. He says, one prayer, it's brief. And the Lord God sends fire and licks up the water. To show his glory. He is God. There is no God but him. The Lord is God. Worship him. Pray to him. We see a number of features of this pagan way of prayer as we come to this passage. Even in 1 Kings 18, we see a number of features about this kind of prayer they prayed. They are trying to get his attention to awaken him, as Elijah points out so sarcastically, to get the deity plugged into their circumstances and wishes. It's as though the deity is lying on the couch and they're trying to get him to get up. Come on, you know, care about us. Care about what we're trying to do. Come on over here. They're trying to awaken his attention. They are trying to win his approval, thinking if they just say enough, just babble on for enough hours. It's been four hours. We need a fifth. We've said it 217 times. We need another 100 times. Obey will answer us. We need to cut ourselves. We need to rave on further. We need to somehow get his attention and get him to show us his approval and his favor. If only we'll do that, he'll approve and he'll listen and he'll act and the fire will come down from heaven. They are trying to coerce him into serving their desires. This is one of the greatest aspects of, not the greatest, but this is one of the most pronounced aspects of pagan religion. Is it sees the world of the gods and the world of man and it says, the gods can be useful to us. We need them so that seas are calm, so that crops come up out of the ground, so that we have children and so forth. We need the gods, so what we do is we give them what they want, these sacrifices and these prayers in the right way, and we have all these things, and then they gotta give us what we want. It's coercive in nature. Make him act on my behalf. That's exactly what we see with the prophet's of Baal. So this is the first problem. Wrong thinking about God and about one's relationship to God. And this wrong thinking in turn leads to a mindless, heartless, empty stringing together of words, heaping up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, which is what Jesus says here. So it's the thinking, and then that gives rise to this babbling kind of prayer. The idea of heaping up empty words is one Greek word that can be rendered to babble. Batalageo is the word. Bata, bata, bata. It sounds like it means. It's a babbling. Bata, 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 bata. Blah, 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 blah is the way we do it. And that's exactly the idea that is being conveyed here. But it's difficult to nail down the exact meaning because of an overall lack of usage in the ancient world. This, world, this word is not used very much. And so it's difficult to kind of pin down precisely what it means. But the basic idea is meaningless prayers that are characterized by verbosity, lots and lots and lots of words, as we saw with the prophets of Baal. There's a number of ways that we can apply this or think about what it might look like. One is mechanical repetition. We see this, I think, in a lot of Roman Catholic prayer practices, especially with the rosary. A kind of mechanical repetition. The more times you say it, the better. 
Just keep saying it. Now, we know that there is a kind of contemplative, meditative way of thinking about going over and over something. And that has its, its place. But we're talking here about prayer itself addressing God. Mechanical repetition, I think, would fall under this category. Repeating the same things over and over again in some kind of mechanical way. Or pagan magical gibberish with numerous sounds and utterances used to invoke the, the deity. This is where we get the idea of abracadabra. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a sort of magical formula of nothingness, of meaninglessness, empty words. And I think a little closer to home for us, so I, I doubt that many of you will go home today and pray the rosary or uh, try to invoke through magical practices. I assume those things won't be happening today. But I think there is one application here that we can draw to ourselves a little more directly, and that is a rambling heaping up of familiar words or phrases. I catch myself doing this a lot. I've been in church for a long time. I grew up in church. I never remember a time not going to church. So I know a lot of church words. <laughs> I've kind of been in the language for a long time. It becomes a little subculture. It becomes a little, a little subculture of language and cliches. And so you, you kind of are praying and you fall into autopilot and you just start saying the same stuff over and over again or you're saying just these cliched phrases that, you know, are prayer, prayer language in English. Prayer language, you know, just a, words that you just repeat when you get in a jam, or you're just zoning out, merely thinking out loud, not engaging God, not engaging God, the God who did what we just read, that God, with our heart and mind in rational relationship, rational relationship with the thinking. Does any of this describe your praying? So let me just ask you this. Do you think? Do you consciously enter into his presence? Do you love God with your mind? This is something, there's a kind of anti-intellectualism, and this is, this is kind of a side, only somewhat related idea, but there's a kind of anti-intellectualism that exists among evangelical Christians that, that says, you know, that there's really not a lot of thinking in the Christian life. There's a whole lot of feeling. And that's one of the reasons you go into a Christian bookstore and you can just go through and say, just like this, with a lot of the stuff that you find, it's, it's ephemeral. It, it's like cotton candy. It's just all on the surface. It's all feelings. It's all experiential. It's not rooted in truth. It doesn't engage the mind at all. Do we pray that way? Or do we love God with our mind and consciously consider as we talk to him that we're in the presence of the great God who made all things, our heavenly father, and this rational relationship that engages the mind is one that is characterized by trust. And that leads to our third question here. Do you trust? Do you trust? In contrast to the pagan way of thinking and the meaningless prayer that follows, Jesus tells, his, tells us how his followers ought to think. Look at verse 8. If that describes the thinking of the Gentiles, how should his disciples think? Verse eight, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. At the heart of this contrast is the word father. That is the difference between the prayer that I just described 
to some distant deity and the prayer of a Christian. The prayer of a Christian always has at its center, look at that, at its center, Abba, always. Not a distant deity whose attention needs to be awakened, but an attentive father who cares for our needs. Psalm 1 talks about how the Lord knows the way of the righteous. See, God knows everything, but he knows in an intimate, personal, loving, fatherly, caring way every step and walk and blink and thought of his people. He knows their way from their rising to their going down in their life and in their death. He knows them. Not a distant deity whose approval needs to be one, but an adopting father who by grace, mercy, kindness, and love has purchased us with the blood of his only unique son. That's the kind of God we pray to. We don't earn his favor. He shows us mercy. He comes to us in our weakness, in our frailness, in our sinfulness, and he gives us favor that we don't deserve. That's the Christian gospel. So the idea of praying to him so as to get him to come on over to our side and to, to, find, to find favor with us flies in the face of everything we know about the gospel. Not a distant deity who can be coerced into serving our desires, but a loving father who always seeks his glory. And listen to this, through our good. How do we know that God seeks his glory through our good? This is something that really settled on me as I was preparing for today. We know that because of Ephesians chapter two, verses one to 10. At the apex of Ephesians two, one to 10, you get us forever bearing witness to God's saving grace. God will forever be glorified because of his grace. Who will be glorifying him? Those who have been blessed eternally in heaven with eternal life. What will they be glorifying him about? His grace and his kindness, his, his seeking our good. And so God is glorified through our good, even when we don't see it or understand it. God is seeking your good today, Christian, no matter how much you're hurting, no matter how much you are in the dark, no matter how confused you are, or how much suffering there is in your life, he's seeking your good. You can trust that. The Heavenly Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is here presented as, I think, three basic things. Sovereign, omniscient, and caring. We learned from the previous passage that he's omnipresent. How do we know that? Because you can go into the secret place. Remember, you can go into the secret place and shut your door and there pray, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. How does he see? Because he's everywhere because he's always present. And here we see that he is all-knowing. He's omniscient. Your father knows what you need. He knows. He is all-knowing and he's caring. So question for us, how do you see the God you pray to? This is a serious, very serious and searching question. Because if we're believing Christians, true Christians, converted believers... We have an answer to that question. That's probably pretty orthodox. But if we leave here today and go out and live our Christian lives, the answer may be a lot different in terms of what we actually do. So let me ask this. Do you think you need to win his favor? When you start to pray to God, are you thinking in terms of, okay, let me get this right. If I pray this just right, then this is gonna happen. Are we praying like as though we're praying to a distant deity or to our heavenly father? Do you think you have to inform him of what's going on in your life? Let me tell you, God. 
Don't you see what is going on? Don't you know? Don't you care? He knows everything. As Spurgeon said, it's not just our lives that he governs and knows. It's every speck of dust that he governs and knows. He is entirely sovereign. He knows everything and cares for us in ways we could never care for our own children. Do you love your children? I do. I love my children. It's as hate compared to God's love for his children. Trust this. So do you pray in these ways or in humble dependence and joyful communion? Do you trust him as your heavenly father who knows what you need before you ask? So how ought we to pray? In this rational relationship of trust, that's what we have before us here. We are to pray, it's assumed, it's commanded, and it's a rational relationship of trust. How are we to pray in this rational relationship of trust? And that leads us to our final bit of text for today, and that is the very beginning of verse nine. Pray then like this. And the question that I want to raise for us is, do you tailor? Do you talk? Do you think? Do you trust? Do you tailor? Here, Jesus gives us a guide, a model, a skeleton for prayer, not something to be repeated verbatim, mechanically, but a skeletal structure for prayer, how to pray, the manner of prayer, the way of prayer, the manner in which we should approach Abba. And here's the thing. What do you think Jesus was doing all night long when he prayed? What do you think Jesus was doing when he would go off into a desolate place? He was doing this. He was praying in this way. Here's the question. Do you tailor your prayers to the priorities and purposes of God. That's where we're going to finish this morning. Do you tailor your prayers to the purposes and priorities of God? Why is it that we so often flounder along as though we have no concrete direction for prayer? I mean, how many things are written on prayer? And how many of us are just sitting around going, man, I don't really pray. I don't really know how to pray. I'm kind of lost. I'm at a loss for prayer. All the while, all the while, it's just right here right here in front of us. I think part of the problem is that liturgical and formal usage of the Lord's Prayer, and think about this for a moment, that's not to say that liturgical or formal usage of the Lord's prayers is intrinsically bad or negative, but it is to say I think that those things have taken the Lord's Prayer and hijacked it, taken it over here, and taken it out of the everyday life of the Christian. So when you think of the Lord's Prayer, and I could be wrong on this, it may only be for some of us, but when you think of the Lord's Prayer, it's not real life. It's not concrete. It's not a guide for real everyday prayer. It's kind of this special little thing that, you know, some people say, some people say a lot and over and over and over again, but it's this kind of formal element over here of the Christian life. And here's what I think the Lord's Prayer helps us in. We have a tendency to invert and erase when it comes to prayer. Let me explain what I mean. We have a tendency to take the elements of the Lord's Prayer, which are the priorities and purposes of God, this is how Jesus wants us to pray. These are the things we ought to pray over. And what happens is we have a tendency to take the first, so the first part is our Father, our Father in heaven. The second part deals with God and his glory. And then the, the next part, the second part of the prayer proper, deals with our needs, our physical needs, our spiritual needs. And here's what we do. We come to the prayer, we come to pray, 
We flip it right upside down and we launch in with our needs. And we spend a lot of time on daily bread. <laughs> we like that one. It's, you know, give me, give me what I need. Give me, give me what I need for today in every area of my life. And so we, we invert the prayer and then here's what we do. It's incredible. Not only do we stop there. That, that's bad enough. We don't just invert it. Then we come along and we erase the second part. That's how we pray. That's how many of us pray. And in our worst moments, spiritually, that's, where, that's what we do. And Jesus gives us an alternative here. He says, pray in this way. Comprehensively, in a prioritized way. Think about it this way. Prayer should not be guided by our circumstances, experiences, and feelings. How much of our prayer is, I'm so guilty of this. How much of our prayer is guided by these things? Whatever's, out, whatever's bubbling up on the surface. Instead, our prayers should be guided by the truth and direction of our creator and redeemer. Even more, our Abba. That's what should guide our prayers. So do we tailor? Maybe start today. Start praying the Lord's Prayer as a skeleton, as a model, as a guide. And think in terms of those bullet points as you pray. Say, well, that's too formal. We're just reading what Jesus said. Pray in this way. He gives us a bullet point list. I'm sorry for those of us who are quite casual and spontaneous. He gives us a bullet point list, which I quite like. I like lists. <laughs> so, as we prepare to study what has traditionally been called the Lord's Prayer, or as we could call the Disciples' Prayer, these are some of the questions we should be asking. Do you talk? Do you think? Do you trust? And do you tailor? Let's pray to the Lord. Our great God, our Heavenly Father, Lord, what, a, what an amazing thing it is to consider your character as Father. To consider that as your kingdom grows and expands that you reveal yourself as Father to more and more people. God, would we be part of your purposes in the world as we align our wills with your will and as we seek to see your word and your fatherhood conquer the sin and death that surrounds us, that it would even conquer what is within us. Father, we pray that your word will feed us today in every way. Give us wisdom for this life. Give us wisdom unto salvation, sanctification for the life to come. And we pray, Father, that you will use this word to become a sword for us, a sword of the Spirit, that we will use your word now to fight against so many of the bad habits that we have acquired over years and years, maybe of being in the church, that we would be freshly impacted, Father, we pray, by these words. Thank you for this time together. We pray that your spirit will multiply it for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen.